You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. This is Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two lovely, charming evening companions here because <laughs> we're we're taking a change from our normal. Normally, we record in usually mid-afternoon on like a weekend day, um, and this is an, a weeknight evening, and so I feel like I am a rogue child. You're slipping away with your girlfriends. Yeah, I kind of do. So I am joined by Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn of Nashville Fertility Center. Hello. How are you ladies doing on this lovely night? I am doing wonderful. It does feel weird to be recording kind of this time of night, doesn't it? I'll have to admit I'm a little bit sleepy, but I'm going to try and stay awake. We were having a, a discussion earlier about some of our favorite drinks and Carrie brought up something really interesting. So I, this is quite some time ago now, but I usually, when I have dinner with friends, I'm the one who brings dessert because I have a massive sweet tooth. And so I I make a, you know, whatever, whatever dessert I feel like I want to eat. And so I get there and I have this peanut butter and chocolate mousse cake that is very sinful and to die for. And somebody pulls out peanut butter whiskey. (laughs) I, it's not nice to call people names, (laughs) but that's what it's called. It's called screwball. It's amazing. We have it all the time. (laughs) What kind of whiskey is it? Peanut butter whiskey. Literally peanut butter whiskey. Like it's a dessert whiskey. I am not a whiskey kind of girl at all. How do you make peanut butter whiskey? I don't know, but I will acquire a bottle for you. It is very (laughs) interesting. You can like, we do it like over like on the rocks and then just put a little cream in it or like half and half. Oh, that sounds really good. You can mix it with, I think... Maybe Midori. I'm not, no, no, not, not, not Midori. That sounds horrible. Not Midori. That sounds terrible. Something that's like fruity. What's one of those fruity ones? Mm. Uh, like a fruity liqueur. Chambord. That's what I was thinking of. Oh, so you can okay. mix it with Chambord and it makes a peanut butter and jelly. That is crazy. Okay. So next week, next week, we're all going to be together at our national meeting in Baltimore. So Susan, your job is to bring some screwball. Okay. Good stuff. We acquire screwball on a regular basis. And my husband likes to give it to friends when they come over. And it's like, here's your like parting gift from our house. This is a bottle of screwball. I remember, and this is years ago, because I was in fellowship at the time. So this is like, were several years ago now, but I went to this restaurant and they had, I like tequila typically is my, if I'm going to drink hard alcohol, I will get a nice bottle of tequila and we'll sip, you know, sip on it. Um, but they had this drink that was like an espresso martini that was based in tequila as the drink. Mm. And it sounded questionable at best, but I ordered it and it's now, I don't know, seven, eight years later. And I am 
still thinking about this drink. And I have tried to go back and look at the cocktail menu of this restaurant and it's not on there anymore. And I'm like, well, how am I going to figure out how to do it? Because I have no idea what they put in it. But, oh, it was really good. Uh, well, you know, coming from Tennessee, you know, home of Jack Daniels, it's you know almost blasphemy to talk about these fruity whiskeys and stuff. But I'll have to admit, I'm not a big <laughs> Jack Daniels fan. So I, I think Screwball for me sounds a little bit better. My husband is a bourbon fan and I'm like, I like the smell, but I don't like the taste and stuff. And he was like, oh, you got to try this. And I'm like, ooh, this is like my my gateway whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we have, we're going to do a bunch of questions today and go through things. And I almost asked if any of them involved alcohol, but I'm pretty sure that none of them do because all of our listeners are smart enough to know that our answer is going to be whatever related to alcohol is don't do it during the midst of, of a cycle. Now, after a negative pregnancy test, that's fair game for a couple of glasses of whatever your drink of choice is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in general, the, the answer to the alcohol questions is a unanimous. No, there's no known safe amount in pregnancy. So what do you have for us, Susan? Okay. So our first one is, hello, I love your podcast. We had male factor infertility and my husband underwent varicocele ligation microsurgery. I have seen that the success of this is variable. People don't really know how it works with male factor. Could you talk about how varicocele ligation helps with male factor infertility and the success rate? Hmm, Good question. So first things first, Abby, do you want to explain what a varicocele is? So varicocele is kind of like a varicose vein, an enlarged vein, kind of like sometimes you see when women are pregnant or in older women in their legs sometimes. Men can get them in their testicles. And so varicoceles generally increase the blood flow um, near the testes, can heat the testes up. And at least traditionally, I've always thought of it more, it relates to decreased motility with sperm. In talking to some of the urologists, though, they tend to think it, you know, in repairing a varicocele may fix other issues as well, numbers, motility, morphology, et cetera. But really, I think generally most people think it's best used if a man has low motility. What are your thoughts, Susan? So what I've really gotten from my urology colleagues lately is varicocele repair is very helpful in a man that is having pain. And in the absence of pain, the data really doesn't, it's, it's essentially a wash. It helps sometimes it doesn't help sometimes, sometimes it might actually make things worse. So if the guy's having pain, fix the varicocele because we don't want the guy in pain, but if it has to do with fertility, probably not exceptionally worthwhile at this point in time. What do you think, Carrie? Well, and I agree in my, in my own experience too, sorry, Carrie, I cut you off there, but in my own experience, it just, it seems like when people have varicoceles repaired, we repeat the sperm count and it doesn't seem to ever be better. So in my own experience, I don't think it's a great idea either. Yeah, I would agree with that. If you're doing it for pain, absolutely go for it. If you're doing it for fertility, it usually, the the tagline is always like, well, maybe if we repair it, we can bump up from whatever type of treatment we needed to do to the less invasive treatment one step above it. So if you were going to have to do IVF, maybe we can do this and do IUI. If you're going to do IUI, maybe you can do this and conceive naturally. And I, I agree with your guys' experience and that it doesn't functionally make a huge amount of difference. And so save an incision and a, a bag of frozen peas on your parts. Um, and you know, nobody wants frozen peas on their parts. <laughs> nobody wants to eat the frozen peas that have been on the parts. Definitely not. <laughs> All right. We're going to go to our next one after that. 
<laughs> no more talk of frozen peas. All right. So our next question is, hello, ladies. Background. I am a 26-year-old female and I'm looking for a reproductive endocrinologist after finding out my husband has a reciprocal translocation. We have not started trying naturally and I have no reason to believe there are any fertility concerns on my side. There are multiple providers in my network area. I just moved and do not know anyone locally that has gone through infertility. Questions. Um, how do I choose my reproductive endocrinologist? What kind of questions should I ask in the first consult session to decide if it's a good fit? I love your podcast. Thank you so much for all you do. That's a great question. That is really fabulous. So let's talk about what, what's a reciprocal translocation first. So we kind of know when she's looking for a doc, what needs to be considered. Susan, you want to take that one? So essentially a reciprocal translocation ha- has to do with chromosomes. Okay. Chromosomes are genetic code. It's what we're built up of. And we all are supposed to have a certain number and they're supposed to be in a certain place. And essentially a translocation is when something has been flipped over. You have the right numbers of everything, but not everything may be in the right place. And When we know patients have this type of thing, we know that that couple is going to be at an increased risk of potentially having trouble getting pregnant um, and more commonly having multiple miscarriages because when things are flipped over, when eggs and sperm come together and divisions are happening, more mistakes than usual happen and things become unbalanced. And so when we hear this, we're thinking of somebody who's potentially going to have issues with recurrent pregnancy loss. And again, like I said, just not getting pregnant because most chromosomally abnormal embryos are never going to implant. And so it sounds like this person is really wanting to kind of bypass this potential level of heartache um, without a better way of saying it and go to a treatment that's going to help them ideally get a baby a little bit faster. And that's really going to be doing IVF or in vitro fertilization with pre-implantation genetic testing, looking for not only just are there the right number of chromosomes, which is PGTA, but making sure that things are balanced and in the right places, which is going to be PGTSR. So Abby, thinking about this young lady who knows that they're going to have to likely do IVF with uh, PGTSR, what things would you look for in a doc that are going to be kind of paramount for that situation? Well, really kind of the key thing is um, make sure that the practice that you talk to or the physician that you talk to, make sure they have the capability of doing IVF. So not all reproductive endocrinologists have the capability of doing IVF, but more importantly, if they do IVF, make sure that they do genetic testing, can do genetic testing on embryos. And there's kind of different practices do different types of testing, but you know, you want to make sure that your doctor that you have can look, like Susan said, at all the chromosomes. So when we take the embryo, biopsy the cells, make sure that they look at all 23 pairs of chromosomes And then make sure that they can get the data back in time for you to have a transfer and to kind of know what the results are. And so you also, one other way to kind of know who might be a good fit or at least a place to start would be, well, ASRM website, you can actually go on there and you can put in where you live and it will let you know who the reproductive endocrinologists are in that area. Because sometimes OBGYNs, 
are interested in fertility. And so they have a focus on infertility, but an OBGYN who has a focus on fertility is very different than a reproductive endocrinologist who has the capability of, you know, having you go through IVF and being able to genetically test your embryos. So board certified REI is a huge thing here. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has good success rates is a huge thing. Yeah, that's a good point too. Success rates is a tough... That's a tough nut to crack. That's a tough nut to crack because the SART and the CDC data tell some of the story, but not all of the story. That's something where we could probably spend 65 episodes on just (laughs) that issue and and where the holes are in that reporting, because the data is good, but it really doesn't tell you a whole lot about the center. Especially if you're new in the area. I mean, there's a lot of times that we as physicians really dislike social media, but this is one time where, you know, you might want to get on Facebook or whatever your social media of choices, look at local groups of women and ask, hey, who's seen a reproductive endocrinologist or infertility specialist in this area? What did you like? What did you not like? Because that way you're going to, you're going to get people to dish. And I can tell from this question that that's, they're wishing they had somebody local to ask and go. There's plenty of stuff. I mean, I know like I'm on the moms of new Braunfels Facebook group and there's always people asking about OB-GYNs or asking about fertility doctors or, you know, all kinds of things like that. And those things are going to be in all areas. So what I would do is find a local women's group that you can join on a social media site and ask there to get that kind of gestalt of, you know, is this a place that, you know, has great success rates, but made treat you like cattle. I can say I went to a, a IVF place like that means to an end. I got a beautiful, beautiful baby out of it. Not how I like to treat my patients and um, that type of thing. Is it a place that holds your hand? Is it a place where, you know, you are more anonymous? Some people want to be more anonymous. Some people really want to have a more deeper relationship with their fertility team. Those are things that you can kind of figure out what's going to fit your personality and potentially your partner's personality by asking those types of questions to local women. Mm -hmm. Looking at some of their social media can sometimes be helpful because you can kind of get an idea of what their personalities are. Like, you know, a lot of us have videos up or, or things like that, where you can kind of get an idea of how do they explain things? Is it to your liking? Like you can kind of pick up who's cut and dried, who's going to hold your hand, who's a really good teacher, those types of things and finding that fit that's best for you. I mean, ultimately it's going to come down to who can get you the embryos to get tested, to make your family. And you may need to go through multiple IVF cycles to get there. And so being comfortable wherever you are is going to be key because there's going to be some bumps in this road and that's okay, but it's helpful to be at a place where they're going to get you that information, get you through that in a way that is good for you as a patient. Well, and also too, I know you're new to town, but if you have an OBGYN, you know, that's a great place to start too, because they can kind of compare and contrast the different practices in town and maybe kind of figure out which practice is a better fit for you, um, you know, since they they know the, the lay of the land a little bit better. All right. Good question. Yep. That was a great one. Um, My husband and I have a 19-month-old son who we conceived naturally on our first try. 
until five months ago, I was nursing him and I was on the mini pill until six weeks ago. So I didn't think anything of the fact that I had not gotten a period since my son was born. I just started trying to conceive a second and used ovulation test strips, which were positive 100% of the time, leading me to get blood work done. The blood work revealed a high LH, 27.5, a high FSH, 76, low estradiol, less than 24, and normal hormone and pituitary function. I have had no symptoms of menopause and my doctor said this seems very sudden for ovarian failure. Is there anything else it could be? So when in doubt, repeat the test. Yeah, definitely. Because you you want to make sure this is real. Now keep in mind, sometimes you can have ovarian insufficiency that's not full-blown failure, but it's heading there. And so sometimes you end up with these crazy high levels that, that then go down because you pop out an egg on an ovulatory cycle. Seeing an FSH going from 76 down to a normal level is not super likely. But the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that you haven't, your system has not been tested in, if your kiddo's 19 months old, then your system really hasn't been tested in 28 months. That's over two years. And so this may not be as sudden as it appears because you haven't had any reason to check it because hot flashes and hormonal screwiness happen all the time in pregnancy. Your estrogen level goes high in pregnancy as a result of what your placenta is doing. So that's going to mask it. When you're a new mom, your, your brain is not on anything other than how do I keep this small human being alive and how do I keep myself functional? And and when you're breastfeeding, of course, you're not going to notice that your period's not there because so many women have lactational amenorrhea where they're breastfeeding all the time. And so their periods don't come back. And that's that's used as birth control in many forms in many parts of the world. And so this may not actually be quite as sudden as it appears. Yeah. It feels sudden to you because it's not something you were expecting. You got pregnant very quickly and that type of thing. But we do see this happen and, and also realize that a couple of things to think about is when women normally go through menopause, they're not technically out of eggs. They still have about a thousand eggs left. And even with women who have established premature ovarian insufficiency, which it sounds like there's a reasonable chance this may be, that there's a 7% lifetime chance of conception of, of getting pregnant and having a baby. And so it's possible, especially if you had maybe, you know, been on birth control pills for a number of years, y'all are like, okay, we're going to try for a baby, stop birth control pills. You ovulated, we had an egg, there was sperm, you know, baby happened. And this may have actually been something that was brewing and you didn't even know it because you were you were taking birth control pills, which a lot of people even use to help control hormonal swings and fluctuations and symptoms in women with premature ovarian insufficiency. I'd be interested to know the age of the patient. Did she mention how old she was? Uh, no, we don't have that. Because it would be unlikely in a 20-something, but, you know, if you were 40 and got pregnant with baby number one and now you're 42, you know, again, that's not as much of a surprise. But, you know, regardless of whether it's a surprise or not, it's still really bad news, I think, overall, you know, because your your estrogen level is low and your FSH is really high. And that generally indicates that your ovaries are not doing what they're supposed to and your brain is kind of talking to them, kind of yelling at your ovaries. You need to get going. You need to make estrogen. You need, need to make eggs. So, I wish we could kind of candy coat this a little bit better, but it kind of looks like you're going that direction, unfortunately, that it looks like it's, you know, at least perimenopause, if not menopause at this point. 
The good news about it is that you can still carry a baby. There's no reason you can't carry as long as, I mean, assuming your first pregnancy went just fine. Um, but it, it may be that using your own egg is going to be really more challenging. So, all right. So let's get to our next one. Let's see. So delivered healthy baby boy in 2017, took five to six months to conceive, started trying again in 2018, have since had two miscarriages. My workup showed an MTHFR gene mutation. I have been taking baby aspirin and methylfolate, my GYN recommended, and we still haven't gotten pregnant. I didn't know I had this and took OTC prenatal vitamins when I was pregnant with my son. I'm wondering if this gene mutation is making as big of a difference as my OB-GYN suggests. Since delivering in 2017, I have developed Hashimoto's. My TSH day is less than two in preparation of conceiving. I am 25 pounds heavier now than when I conceived initially. I never lost the baby weight. Honestly, I think this is likely my issue. I'm 32 and my husband is 38. We had workups at preg and everything was normal. Just wondering about the MTHFR gene mutation. So MTHFR, I would say probably six or eight or maybe even 10 years ago, that was kind of a big thing that a lot of us checked. And, you know, sometimes we checked it for the recurrent pregnancy loss workup and, you know, we were really concerned about it. And now I think most physicians, most fertility physicians, most hematologists, most most general OBGYNs, kind of think that it probably, we it was kind of overblown in terms of how much problem it really caused. Probably in reality, it really didn't cause that much issue with fertility and pregnancy. And um, it was really a more of an issue that if you had this abnormality in some women, homocysteine could be elevated and it would increase the risk of miscarriage. But now the American College of OBGYN and ASRM doesn't even really recommend that you test that as part of a workup for recurrent pregnancy loss. So, you know, I wish I could point to that and say that that's the problem, but I, I, I doubt that that's the problem. You mentioned your weight. And for many women, if they gain weight with pregnancy, sometimes it makes their cycles irregular and they don't ovulate regularly. And you didn't really mention, or at least I didn't hear about your menstrual cycles, but certainly gaining 10 pounds even can make a big difference in terms of your hormone levels. And some women can go from having regular ovulatory cycles every month with the addition of 10 pounds of weight, they can go to where their cycles are very irregular and they're not making an egg every month. So, you know, of the things that you mentioned, you know, your Hashimoto's seems to be under good control. You know, the weight could be an issue, but I, I don't really think the MTHFR is really having a significant impact on your ability to get pregnant. With MTHFR, about 40% of the population carries at least one mutation for it. And 40% of the population is not having recurrent miscarriages. And so, you know, you can, on the one hand, you can take heart and that that's probably not it. On the other hand, one of the most frustrating thing about recurrent losses is that the better part of them, 50% of them, we don't ever get a diagnosis for it. We don't ever have a reason why that happens. And more than anything, people want to know why, because most people would accept that you have a mutation that is going to, you know, give every child three heads and 65 arms because you can accept that. It's much harder to accept. We don't know what it is. So I don't, I don't know that I go blaming the MTHFR. Um, I don't think the methylfolate or the aspirin is really going to do any harm, but I don't know that they're going to help much either. Um, Oftentimes for my patients anyway, I'll tell them take the aspirin as soon as they get pregnant rather than before, because I always worry if you've got high levels of NSAIDs, you're going to block ovulation. I don't know that you're going to really block anything with an 81 milligram dose of aspirin. Like that's tiny. So that's a wash. You can go either way, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
you know, if you had significantly high homocysteine levels or you had maybe second or third trimester losses, but I'm assuming that's not the case because most of the time people are very specific about that, that it's, you know, it's a test kind of of the past. Um, You know, we've done an episode on things like that before. You know, I, I do see quite a few people in my practice who have been had an evaluation by their you know, primary OB who have had, you know, lengthy coagulation workup. And I'm like, yeah, the, you know, the data just doesn't, it, it really doesn't support all that. And, and, you know, it, I don't think you're a candidate for like blood thinners, like Lovenox or heparin or anything like that. We know that most miscarriages are due to chromosomal abnormalities of the embryo, um, you know, mistakes that happen as um, those little cell divisions are happening after egg and sperm come together. And so, that is that is most likely the case. You know, if you've gone potentially six months and haven't conceived, you may want to consider going to a reproductive endocrinologist just to get a, a second set of eyes on things. You know, maybe have a saline ultrasound, make sure kind of eyes are dotted and T's are crossed for a full recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation. All right. So it looks like we've got time for maybe one, either two quick ones, one longer one. All right. Let's do this one. I am 37 and my husband is 44. We have been trying to conceive for 18 months. We just finished fertility testing. And besides my AMH being on the low end, everything was normal. My OBGYN said my uterus looks great. And she thinks I would have no problem carrying to term because of my age and AMH. She doesn't recommend that I try Clomid or Letrozole, but instead go straight to a fertility clinic for IUI or IVF. I'm kind of let down that we can't try Clomid or Letrozole. We are not in a place where a fertility clinic is an option. Should we get a second opinion or are we stuck trying the old fashioned way? Again, she's 37, husband's 44. Yeah, I think everything kind of hinges on, or at least for me, I would like to know what your AMH is because a low AMH can be a lot of different things and an AMH of like, one versus an AMH of 0.9 versus an AMH of 0.1 is really is different in terms of the prognosis. And so, you know, most fertility physicians would say, or actually the, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine says, if you've tried for more than six months and you're beyond the age of 35, you probably should seek a fertility doctor. And, you know, I tell my patients, it's not that you can't do Clomid or Femar or Letrozole but it's just, it's probably not a good decision because your reproductive lifespan is limited, particularly if you have a low AMH. And so I think most fertility physicians would say, you know, ideally we want you to do something more aggressive to speed up the time it takes you to get pregnant. And frankly, many fertility doctors would be even encouraging you toward IVF because it's the quickest route to pregnancy and the most successful route to pregnancy. And, you know, it's not that we wouldn't let you do those other things. I I usually tell my patients, my job is to let you know what your options are. Your job is to make the final decision. But I think most fertility physicians would recommend more aggressive therapy because of your age and because of your AMH. And it's important to know that when you come to see us, you're not coming to us for fertility treatment. You're coming to us to get help you get a baby. And so when we're making recommendations, that's what we have in mind because it's really easy to get caught up and, oh, I want to do Electrozole. I want to do Clomid. I want to do, and then I, you know, I want to do that for six cycles. And then I want to do an IUI for six cycles. And then I'll try IVF. Our goal is to get you a baby in, in the fastest, most efficient way possible. And if, if you just flat out can't do IVF, you can't do IVF. But when we're making these recommendations and it sounds like your OBGYN is on this page, they're thinking of what do you want out of this at the end of the day? 
you want a small human being that you can cuddle who can keep you awake at night. And (laughs) going to see a fertility doc and being more aggressive from the outset is more likely to keep you awake and destroy your sleep for the next several years. So a couple of things that I'm thinking of is, you know, when I talk to patients, one of my kind of philosophies is I want to do the least invasive, but the most appropriate. And that's going to vary from couple to couple. It's a very individualized type of thing, but sometimes the least invasive, but the most appropriate is Clomid or Letrozole or, or something like that. But sometimes it is the whole shebang and go on straight to IVF. It just kind of varies. And it's also, you know, what's the best thing for the two of you? If you sit there and say, we absolutely cannot do anything except for blank because of whatever reason, whether it's financial, geographic, ethical, moral, religious, whatever it is, that's fine. What we want to do is make sure you understand the different risks and benefits of those different treatments. The other thing is this being 2021, one of the beauties of COVID, because there have been actually a few beauties of COVID, is that telemedicine among fertility clinics is is not an unheard of thing, which two years ago it was. Okay. Nobody in fertility did telemedicine, except for people like Carrie who were doing telemedicine across the world. Okay. (laughs) I'm sticking my tongue out at Susan right now. (laughs) Most of us did not do telemedicine and it was very much an exception than a rule. Whereas now, I mean, a lot of us are doing a lot more telemedicine. And so you know, we're, we are all very much aware that there are very few reproductive endocrinologists in the United States. And there are some States that have very few, like literally handful. I have patients who come to see me all the time from three hours away. And I have colleagues who, you know, it's not unheard of for people to drive three, five, six, sometimes eight hours to go see a fertility doctor but realize that we do have resources like telemedicine at our fingertips. We also have resources like remote monitoring, different things like that. So it sounds like you probably live kind of in the middle of nowhere, which can be absolutely beautiful, but don't count yourself out from actually getting medical guidance and expertise of a board certified reproductive endocrinologist, because you really do have access to these people now more than ever because of the availability of these different aspects. All right. Well, that's been fun guys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like these question episodes. It's kind of fun to think about think about all these things and hear the the other opinions that... Um, yeah, it's kind of fun that the three of us are all kind of given our perspective and it's fun how we kind of take different points from the questions and focus on them. We don't even practice these, do we? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. All right. So to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes. We appreciate those an awful lot. And we would love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility or ideas that you have for episodes. All of your questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to hear your ideas and questions. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.